Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a journalist, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, making the numbers add up in business and fundraising. David Sproul is senior partner and chief executive of Deloitte, one of the big four accounting firms that offers a multitude of services to companies including audit, tax, deals advice and consulting. Coming to the end of his time in charge, Sproul has increased sales eight years running, but is among leaders who have failed to dispel concerns over audit quality and conflicts of interest in the profession. Sproul joined Arthur Anderson's tax division in 1984 and negotiated the sale of the UK practice to Deloitte when the American firm was heading for collapse because of its involvement with Enron. Kate Collins is chief executive of Teenage Cancer Trust, a trailblazing charity which has funded 28 specialist units in hospitals across the UK to care for young people diagnosed with cancer. The charity raised £16 million last year, helped as usual by a string of sellout gigs staged at the Albert Hall. Collins joined the charity a decade ago to develop a regional fundraising programme and became CEO in 2018. Earlier in her career, she worked at Children in Need and Cancer Research UK. I began the conversation asking David what legacy he leaves behind. It's interesting because I am starting to think about it. And there's two things. The first is you realise that your piece in the whole organisation is really one small piece. Our organisation, Deloitte, is 175 years old next year, and I'm the 25th CEO of this organisation. So it sort of humbles you when you think about that, because probably the people who've gone before me have achieved far more than I've achieved in terms of going from that, that start uh, to now. But it also allows you just to think about, well, in, in my eight years, what's changed? And I suppose there's two things that I reflect on. Firstly is the culture in our organization, the respect we have for our people, the way we, we develop and bring people on. And, and certainly I feel it. People tell me we're a different organization. We're a different organization in terms of how we recruit, how we respect, how we develop. And then the second thing is more business-centered, which is we've globalized. You know, We're an organization that's made a very material shift in how we operate globally. And if you look at that from the inside then it's totally different to where it was in terms of our ability to to do what we say we do from a global footprint. So those are probably the yeah. two things. Uh, so in some respects, eight years could have gone in the, in, in the blink of an eye, but actually, as you describe it, the Deloitte you leave behind, you will leave it behind. I'll leave this office behind, that's for sure. Fine, okay, but it's very different to the one yeah. that you took over in, in 2011. Correct, yeah. absolutely. And it, and it probably always is. I think that's probably, that, that's a continuum, I think. Yeah. There's probably never any one thing there's numbers of things you do it when you're given the privilege of leading an organization that have an impact. And some of that impact is not seen until a few years later, but I think it does happen over time. Yeah. And Kate Collins, you're one year in as CEO, so very much in the foothills. Absolutely. So not, can't be considering legacy yet. No. But what is the big challenge that you've got to get to grips with as a leader? I think the big challenge, I'm the, I'm the third chief executive of Teenage Cancer Trust, so we're a much younger mm. organisation in every sense. We've really transformed cancer care for young people in the UK. So we've gone from kind of mavericks to, to much more mainstream now. So 30 years ago, when the first Teenage Cancer Trust ward opened in London in 1990, it was an idea born of huge passion of the founders of the charity that really young people need something different. They're not children, they're not adults, and there will be huge 
benefit to bringing young people together in specialist places as they face cancer. And and now I'm leading an organisation where there are 28 of those wards across the UK, nearly 100 specialist members of the team working in the NHS. And our job now that teenage and young adult care has become more mainstream is to really recapture some of those maverick feet to the fire kind of roots that ignited the passion of the organisation because in part it's now about how do we help keep the NHS on task and help them meet the needs of young people with Mm. cancer and how do we kind of really fire up our energies around what's needed next for young people with cancer. So there's a real tipping point, I think, really kind of holding on to that heartland of the founding spirit of the organisation at the same time as we mature as an organisation and become more professional. So as as we hit our 30th birthday, we have to keep in touch with that yeah. teenage youthful spirit that set us up. But we also have to work in a very different world than it was 30 years ago. There's quite rightly yeah. a, a need for much more professionalism from charities. You know, we have to be as strategic as enormous global corporate businesses and the quality of our decisions is is in my case measured in the lives of young people with cancer so it's a, yeah. it's a privilege to lead it so yeah. we're growing up and we we we're, we're really being able to mature as an organization but not become too yeah. too old david i have to yeah. go a long way back to get to the sort of the startup phase of deloitte from memory it was an audit of a piece of railway from correct i suppose what people might not realize about your term at deloitte is the firm has grown if you like organically i think you're going to retire off the back of 8 years years of top line growth, but also you took the decision, you and your colleagues took the decision to wrap UK partnership in with the Nordics, with Belgium, and you've created effectively the empire must have gone up by at least 50%. Talk me through that. You're, you're right, James. And um, it goes to the point around you know, most change is organic. You know, we've done some inorganic things as well in terms of gone outside the organisation, but most of what we've done has been organic. If you look at the UK business, it's doubled in size over the last eight years. And that's partly, of course, a good economy despite all the challenges. But it's partly we've broadened out the business, so we've added things like digital and those things that we knew our clients needed. But the other big shift, as you said, was recognizing that we had to be more global. Part of that was to take the UK uh, and combine it with the Nordics, with Belgium, Netherlands, Switzerland, Ireland, and most recently uh, with our firms in Italy, uh, Greece, and uh, and Malta. So we've recognized the need to be uh, borderless, Uh, both for our people and our clients, uh, to create something which has more scale for investment. And frankly, there was a a bit of uh, looking at how do we make sure that as markets change, because economies do change, even from our point of view, we've got a more balanced portfolio. So that is quite a big shift. Mm. And it's a big shift for the partners who are used to thinking about their piece of the whole pie and all of a sudden having to raise their sights and think beyond their own borders into something much, much larger. So it's been quite material in terms of that. And how did it come about? Because this isn't a Brexit podcast. It's almost a reverse Brexit that you've gone through. There was a bit of that. And of course, when we went into this, we went into this and started these conversations before the referendum. I was like so many people assumed the referendum would be to stay. So this wasn't in advance of the referendum, anything that was defensive or protective. It was because we recognised our clients were becoming more borderless. Uh, frankly, whether they're major multinationals or the smallest clients, they need to look outside their borders. And that's why we need to respond. What was interesting was we kicked this off pre the referendum, we voted on it post the referendum, and we had uh, 2000 partners across these markets voting to come together. And then we did have to make the case why it was not Brexit dependent, whatever the outcome, but actually, to your point, there was something that was um, defensive 
for the yeah. UK business that if the UK did suffer, then actually we're part of something bigger. So it met both objectives. Yeah. And how do you get the UK partners? I think you have 700 equity partners in the UK, probably 1,000 in, in, in total. Right. How do you get one of them to relate to the long-serving partner in, in Stockholm who have really, they've not really been on first-name terms before and suddenly they are part of a much closer family, yeah. albeit within that broader yeah. global Deloitte Federation? Yeah. It's like any change. You have to appeal to hearts and heads. So we had to build the business case. We had to make the economic case, why this was good for the business, why the intellectual logic was clear. But we had to appeal to hearts. I mean, Mm. I spent a lot of time on the road with groups of partners in the UK, groups of partners across our larger firm, explaining why this was the right thing for the next generation of partners, for our people, for our clients, Mm. how we're going to to activate our purpose. Mm. And actually appealing to that that sense of stewardship and responsibility. Mm. But I had to make the business case as well. So that's what it sure. was. And it was, it was um, yeah, head, and, head and, um, yeah. and heart. And Kate, there's several hundred in your team, but there's obviously you're right across the UK. There's the regional fundraising and so on. You talked about getting that sort of startup spirit back. But how do you sort of keep everyone aligned, if you like? I think Teenage Cancer Trust is a real heart organisation. So the people who work at Teenage Cancer Trust are enormously inspired by purpose and passion. So actually quite a lot of what I do is, is really making sure that I'm as connected connected to the people who are working with the organisation as well as our supporters. You know, we've got and it's a real enormous movement of people who care deeply about changing the lives of young people with cancer. And sometimes bringing the headpiece into that is the kind of the tipping yeah. point, I think, yeah. of, of what you're saying in a very analytical organisation. So it's about it's about what works well in your culture. And a lot of what I do is, is being able to, and hopefully more and more, now I'm kind of through the first year and building up my team, my kind of executive team, um, to be able to get out and about more and spend time with our frontline staff who are working with young people every day. And also my team who are out on the road working with our supporters, negotiating with the NHS, being able to see what they're doing. It's really sophisticated work in practice and it's really complex. And being able to kind of spend time with them and watch them in action is then being balanced by some of the really difficult decisions we have to make because there isn't enough money to do everything that we want to do. There is no magic money tree. And it's a really tough climate, you know, to be able to ask people to give us their disposable income. There's less of that in people's pockets. And everything that this organisation does is fueled by donations. So for me, a lot of my job is being able to humanise some of the intellectual decisions that might be happening. So it doesn't feel like it's happening in a a closed room where they go and make decisions. It's Mm. about having that feedback loop. And I mean, I use social media a lot, so you don't have to be kind of physically present with people you can pick up a lot of what people are talking about you have to mm. be really careful of echo chambers but you can pick that up you can start to read things that kind of get on my radar and I think just need to have a chat because, there and because I suppose it. the heart is of course they love and believe in the cause and so on but you know the charity world is a competitive it is. sector from a head point of view it is. you need to be able to motivate your people to connect with the donor yeah. and I, I think from your numbers most of the money comes from individuals yes. um, it's not a particularly you know, the corporate support is there but it's not huge compared to some other charities so it's really connecting with individuals and in a way making sure that your people are authentic enough to say well we can take this money and do great things with it as opposed to this charity or that charity and and so on absolutely that all comes down from the top from you it does i mean around a third of our income will come from corporate partnerships but lots of those are and are certainly our community fundraising income is built around what i would call 
an inspired community around a young person who is going through cancer. So they will be an enormous catalyst. And clearly, we don't expect this to happen. It's the nature, I think, of, mm. of human beings in the face of something where you really can't do anything to influence it. Fundraising can form a really important role for that family, that extended family, the community, the schools, the workplaces of the mums and dads who've got a young person going through cancer. They're really the backbone of the support for Teenage Cancer Trust. But, you know, in, in a corporate marketplace, we will be in a competitive pitch situation to win a relationship. We were in a competitive pitch situation a few months ago where actually all three charities pitched in front of each other, yeah. um, which was really conflicting because to, to follow an organisation that's positioning remarkable yeah. work and around... you respect them as well. Of course yeah. I respect them. And, and to, to follow someone who's pitching about how the partnership would help them stop sexual exploitation of young people and then for me to stand up and talk about young people with cancer it's, you, you can't, can't make say a value what, judgment. you can't, you can't, can't make a value judgment and actually and it's you have to be really careful I think in how you position that because yeah. people don't want to see charities competing and what I'm seeing in particularly the children and young people's cancer charities sector because there's lots of charities doing brilliant work is I find it really interesting that as money is harder to come by, there's a much greater drive for organisations to collaborate. So collaborate or merge? Co collaborate at the mm, moment. Okay. I mean, there are some mergers happening, but I'm part of a Children and Young People's Cancer Charities coalition where 16 chief executives get together once a quarter and we sit down and we go, OK, so where are we each focusing? Let's make sure we're not duplicating. Where can where can my organisation help amplify yours voice? We're one of the bigger players in that 16, sector. 16, though. I mean, you must sit around that table and think for what the outputs are. Surely it's more efficient if there were fewer than 16. I think it, it can be in some cases. I think mergers often make sense on a spreadsheet. I think when you actually look at the level of impact that organisations can deliver if they remain really focused, um, I think that's always something you've got to, to weigh up. I think what you need are, are you need a good consultant. <laughs> Do you I, think? I, where I where might I find one? One of the things we've looked at, because I think there's, there's a real connection here. I mean, all our people and Kate's people are interested in making an impact. Yeah. You know, your people start with that. Yep. Our people may start with the analytical bit, but it's really interesting that increasingly the challenge we have is how do we bring to life the impact we have beyond just sending a check to a charity and say, therefore, we've done it on your behalf. Because our people want to know when they're working with clients, it's positive impact. So therefore, when I talk to the team who are working for a client like Novartis, they see that very clearly because they see what they're doing that supports drug development. When I work to a, a client working for a bank, for example, a team working for a bank, they see it less clearly. But what's really interesting is your point on large versus small, because through our sort of One Million Futures program, we've got to the point of asking all our local teams to pick local causes, because yeah. we found actually having one or two big central causes, whilst it was headline grabbing and, and it, we could say it's effective, it didn't impact as many of our people. Not as many of our people felt they were actually making a contribution. Yeah. So we now say to our team in Leeds, you know, pick the local causes that really matter to you and we'll support that with with some money, but importantly with our people's skills yeah. who will come yeah. in and help that charity become more difference. professional. I'm interested yeah. in, the, in the, the point about engagement at Deloitte, David. I mean, arguably there's not one Deloitte. There's either 700 or 1,000 Deloittes. Every partner, for good or for ill, feels like they own the firm. Mm. And then democracy you know, you're, you're at the, <laughs> and you're at the top making sure the, uh, the, the plates are spinning and, and so on. And, and it even comes down to the balance of we'll make this amount of money, we'll reinvest this, but we'll balance that against what the partners take out every year. So this is a diplomatic job. It, it is to a certain extent. And of course, you're tested every four years because at the end of four years, the partners have the opportunity to say, you know, yay or nay, if they think you've done a, a good job. So there is something that really ensures that you don't ignore the interests of the owners, but equally, they expect you to make the right decisions. 
And so I've never found it difficult to convince the partners to your, your, your point of invest or pay that we need to invest more. Because investing is about returns in the future, which everyone benefits from. But there is an element of that uh, every year, convincing them as, as the owners, the shareholders, that you've made the right balance of decisions. What do you think about the point of trust? You're the front man. Deloitte and the big four have had more newspaper coverage or, and other media coverage in the last, yeah. say, five years than decades before yeah. that, I would say. Not all of it's great. Some of it's about you know audit quality. Correct. Before that, the complaint of the time was, was about tax. So you're the front man. Do you just have to make the best of it? There will always be things that go wrong. Or is it sort of you know turning around to your guys and saying, root and branch, we have to eke all this out? I think there's two things. The first is we've got to get better at explaining who we are and and what we stand for, because we should always accept mistakes will happen. But fundamentally, we're clear that that we do the right thing and we're just not good enough at explaining that. And and in some ways, we have to take responsibility for the fact that trust has gone because we haven't done a good enough job at dealing with it. And if those are errors, we have to learn from it. Frankly, if it's down to bad behavior and our, our organization is just a lens on society, so we will have people who sometimes do the wrong thing we'll deal with it and they'll leave the organisation. Is that the way you look at it? You know, we're so big, we're 16,000 people in the UK, I think there are going to be, if you like, bad apples or people making the wrong judgment calls and you you have to sort of ride it out. You know, all of our messaging is built on integrity. All of our messaging is built on doing the right thing. So we spend an extraordinary amount of time. One of the things I say, when we have new partners, every year we'll have 50, 60, 70 new partners. And every year I sit down and talk to them. One of the things I say to them is there is no amount of revenue that is worth putting our reputation at risk. And so I'd rather you frankly sold nothing and didn't put our reputation at risk than try to sell something. So we really instill that message. But equally, if something goes wrong, we'll deal with it. And you have to deal with it. And you have to deal with it in a very public way and make it clear that it's just not acceptable. Now, thankfully, that is extraordinarily rare. And the real challenge we have, James, is that there's a disconnect in terms of the public perception because we haven't done a good enough job at explaining how we deal with these things. And I would say the reality. There is still this misconception, you know, the magic of the audit, what the audit achieves and what it doesn't. And an audit is seen as sort of this glorious safety blanket. But actually, I think you will say it does some things but doesn't do others. I do understand why we're having that debate. So I do understand why MPs or the man in the street thinks that an audit should give a guarantee that a company won't fail. And it should give a guarantee there's no fraud. I can understand why people think it should do. Now, I can explain why the law says it doesn't do it. But I don't think that's an unrealistic expectation unless you're familiar with the rules. What more could we do to give greater assurance companies won't fail? The trouble is, we all know companies fail for a whole raft of reasons. Mm. They have the wrong business model. They run out of money. They have poor management. It's the very few examples where there's something to do with the audit. But at the moment, uh, we're in a position where we're at the scene of the crash we have a responsibility. And I don't think as a profession, we've done yet a good enough job at explaining exactly what our responsibility is and how we stand behind that. And as we sit here, there are crash team investigators from government, Donald Bryden, the regulator. So everyone is pouring over and we'll see what that goes later in the year. Kate, on the point of trust and doing the right thing, I guess you must be quite paranoid about this because charities have seen if they are doing the wrong thing, if they are exposed for raising money in the wrong way or so on, you see it in the numbers almost overnight. You do. People, People can put their money elsewhere. So what sort of controls do you as the leader have to put in place? I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of controls across Teenage Cancer Trust. We're a very values-driven organisation, so we will always bring it back to, actually, can we explain the decisions that we're making to the person who's given us the money 
to make this possible. So, you know, there's always a seat at the table for the donor. So, in every, you know, in every meeting, one of those chairs, metaphorically, not you know, it would be a little bit weird to have the person sitting there, but, you know, actually to have the donor sitting there because it's their money that f- is fueling every piece of activity that Teenage Cancer Trust undertakes. But for me, there's also about can I, in three years' time, explain this decision to a young person? So we had a situation a few years ago where we had two potential corporate partners competitors in the same sector needing to make a choice about which one which I mean a wonderful wonderful dilemma to have as an organization I'm not complaining but which one do we go with and actually one of them was able to make a decision more quickly and they were saying you know if you can go with us just trust us and I was like guys I need this in writing because if I do this on trust and something changes in your business that means we've stepped away from another opportunity. How do I sit down in three or four years time and explain to the young person we haven't been able to help that was because I kind of just took it on trust and didn't have the rigor mm. to put the detail in place and push for that decision. So yeah. I think for me, there's always the, those those kind of two vital stakeholders at the table. And, and obviously, then we are we are regulated. Our fundraising is regulated. Yeah. And we have to make decisions about we have to invest in order to grow as an organization, which can mean that you're you're putting money into building up capacity in an organization, which people people often call that overhead. But rather than rather op- opening than, another care rather, center for exactly, teenagers around the country. Th- and these so are on. difficult decisions. Yeah. You know, yeah. do we do we fund another nurse now or do we actually invest in our organizational capacity to grow our digital and technological abilities to reach young people well, through those yeah. channels? So so those are some of the trade-offs that, that you have to make. That's and what you're there for. It is. You call yourself the senior fundraiser. You were the director of fundraising, and yeah. now you're CEO and, and senior fundraiser. Um, why is that? Is that because if the money doesn't come in, then the trust doesn't exist? In many ways, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Teenage Cancer Trust, all good fundraising through my eyes, is based on relationships. And Teenage Cancer Trust is an organisation that's been built on relationships and reputation. You know, there is you, you cannot buy that. That's built up over time, just like you're talking about, David. And, and for me, people buy people and people need to be able to really count on my integrity, the vision for the organisation. And, and are they investing in in actually what comes beyond me? You know, we are you get the privilege of leading these organisations. I'm at a slightly different point yep. in my timeline than you are in yours, David. But, you know, we are all our successors, predecessors. So what are the things that I can make some really rock solid decisions on now yep. that will that will reap benefits for young people way beyond me being th- the chief executive? I think you said there was a there was a, a time when the fundraiser didn't become the CEO. But the world in yeah. charities has changed. Yeah. Why is that? It's it's a growing pattern, I think, that, that directors of fundraising are moving into the chief exec seat rather than maybe the director of finance or the director of service delivery or research operations, depending on the organisation. I think that's about organisations need the fuel in the tank. It's and, the fuel and, in the tank, yeah. And often the fundraisers have got a more yeah. commercial mindset. I, I want to talk about uh, your rise, if you, if you like, David, because Deloitte is, we've talked about the diplomacy, but there's, almost, there's also democracy there as well. I mean, there's something, whether you call it presidential or, or papal almost, about how how firms there's like no white smoke. There's oh my no goodness. You should get a new outfit. Yeah, absolutely. Oh but how they how you pick the leader? Effectively, mm. you are chosen from your own. The partners there is there is an election. The partners choose their next senior partner and, and chief executive. So when you go into that, and then if you're lucky and you want it, you get re-elected. So you do two four year terms. But going into that process, do you have to think? You know, how do I position myself? What's my manifesto? How do I do this without frightening the horses? There's there's a little. And if I think back, so you're right. I mean, despite being a 
global modern organization, there is one thing which is slightly you know, archaic is that we do still elect our leaders. I think there's two things. You have to, and certainly if I go back to what I did, you have to present the manifestos. You have to say, this is what you're going to achieve in, in, in your chapter of, of this great firm. But you also have to win hearts and minds because in the end, they are electing a leader and, and people like to follow their leader. They want to respect, they want to like, they want to understand, they want to connect. And so they want to understand who you are. And so in some ways, the piece about what you're going to do is becomes almost secondary yeah. to who are you, how are you going to lead? Because at that stage, most candidates, in terms of what they're going to do, won't be materially different. You know, They want to improve the organization. There'll be things they want to do in our case around building client relationships or making a better people offer. And it's more about how they do that. And so certainly what I found is you have to, frankly, put yourself on show. You have to um, have all those conversations. And, and the great thing is, before you're elected, of course, people can ask you anything they want, can say anything they want to you, can criticize you. And that's actually really empowering because you're not the leader at that point. You're a candidate. Mm. And actually, our process allows that to come through. So if people disagree, they'll say, I think that's absolute nonsense or something stronger than that. You know, explain why you think that. They'll sit down at dinner with you and ask you all those questions. But is that piece about if they're going to have you in that seat for four years, yeah. they want to know it's someone actually they respect they understand, they align with the values. And that's the most important piece. And they will have known you because you've been in the building for, for, for a while. But I guess they look at you in a different light. They want to know a little bit about peccadilloes, about you know whether it's family life or something. Do you think that process, though, means that you have to be quite conservative? I mean, you, you aren't going to become the next leader well, of Deloitte by saying, I'm going to totally blow up the organization, it, guys. It's interesting, James. I remember when I went into this, the organization, I don't think is, is innately conservative, but it's a range of views. I remember when I went into my first pitch, so I stood up to the 700 partners. And one of the first things I spoke about was my wife and daughters, about who they were, what they thought about what I was doing. My daughter had joked with me that it sounds like I was going for a job interview. Now, half the audience thought that was really, really helpful. Half the audience thought, why is he telling me about his wife and daughters? So that's that half who just said, you know, just show me the numbers. Tell me what you're going to do. I'm not interested in your wife and daughters. Half said, wow, that's the most important thing I heard. I didn't right. realize, you know, David had this daughter and, and that, that was happening. And so I think it just shows that that range of emotions in our organization. Yes. Some, some want that empathy and really want to want to understand it. And until they knew that, they couldn't ever have elected me. Others, just, that's not interesting at all. Sure. It does sound like politics, you know, that you can't please all the people all the time. You know, that he won't play well in the shires, that sort of uh, that sort of thing. Kate, you joined Teenage Cancer Trust, I think, in 2009. Yes, that's right. And, you know, your career has been in, it's been around kids and it's been around cancer. So yes. this is the place it is. for you. <laughs> when you joined then, did you have half an eye and think, do you know what? I'd love to run this. No, God, it never crossed my mind. I mean, apart from, you know, my childhood dream was to be Wonder Woman. So I think I was always trying to take over the world. But um, once I found out I couldn't get an invisible plane, that was the deal done. Well, you so. could have helped each other out because David wanted to be a pilot. Oh, absolutely. Oh, seriously. Yeah. We, yeah. Oh, this is a match yeah. made in heaven. We're both, we, we've both failed on our primary <laughs> we objective. We but we're doing something we equally valuable. You're interviewing two monumental failures. Well done. Um, but I think, no, I, I joined Teenage Cancer Trust at a time when it was a family-based decision for me too. And I was really upfront about that. I'd worked in really big organisations until that point. My son was two and I knew that 
for me to be working full time away from my son, I was like, well, actually, I really want to have a quicker feedback loop between the effort and the activity I'm putting in at that time as a head of fundraising and being able to see that turn into results for the beneficiaries of the organisation. And that's much easier to do in a, in a smaller, more nimble, mm. more agile organisation. And for me, I've always been somebody who wants the next challenge. I've always been, you know, the person who puts their hand up and goes, you know, what? I'll give that a go. Even if inside I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Am I going to get away with this? Have those moments of self-doubt? Absolutely. But I'll always give something a try. And to then be in an organisation that was growing really rapidly and lots of opportunities coming up, I was like, yeah, I can do that. And having worked in bigger organisations, I had things that I could bring over and say, this is how I've seen this work. Let's have a go. Let's roll our sleeves up and... And in lots of ways, be able to have that hearts and minds piece of people when you are changing an organisation. Mm. And and I, I, it's a really symbiotic relationship for me with Teenage Cancer Trust as an organisation there. As it's grown, I've been growing. The challenge facing the organisation, I've found myself well placed to help with. It's a good fit. feels like home. Yeah. David, to talk about the skills you've gained on the way, whenever I interview somebody who's been in a professional services firm, a law firm, and they've done effectively their whole career there, they will always say, well, I've had lots of jobs in that time. And I'm sure you would say that. But I'm interested in when did the skills come that gave you what you needed for that manifesto talk? I suppose they came, you know, at at various points. And you're right, there will be a piece of this about I had lots of different jobs. But I was very fortunate that I had really strong sponsors at various points who backed me to do things and were prepared to let me fail. So, you know, very early on, when I was a brand new partner, I was asked to lead the group. We're like any organization, we're broken down by divisions and groups. And you were a very young partner. Yeah. So there I am at 30, thinking I know everything, of course, as you do. (laughs) When you've just had that promotion, you're full of confidence, some of it well-placed, some of it not. But the person who at that point was a very strong sponsor, mentor of mine, said, I want you to lead this group. So I was thrilled. And I learned from that. And I learned very early on that I had to learn because my first experience of bringing the team together uh, where I sat down and told them what was going to happen was not successful. And one of them who I knew very well, you know, called me up that evening and said, that was not a great afternoon we just spent together. This was the this was the away afternoon to bring yeah. the team together and rally everyone. Right. Yeah. And my um, youthful enthusiasm and absolute confidence, I had all the answers, failed. It fell absolutely flat. So I was fortunate having someone who gave me that chance. I was fortunate having people in that group who knew I had it in me to give me the honest feedback that evening and say, that was terrible. So I think some of it is being given those opportunities and learning from your mistakes. Mm. And and that builds who you are. And through Mm. that, I've built those things around principles and, Mm. and openness and decisiveness that I think has allowed me to be be yeah. successful. But had I not had that experience, sure. I'm not sure I'd be here now, James. Really? At, the, at, at 30? Okay. Yeah. The one that gets talked about, the real sort of feet to the fire, was you were COO of Arthur Anderson in, in the UK. Yeah. Something called Enron happened, yeah. and the Arthur Anderson people in the States were getting rid of documents in a way maybe they shouldn't have been. The whole enterprise was crumbling. Yeah. You were tasked with going to New York and effectively buying out the UK partnership. I remember a few years ago you told me you took clothes for two nights... And you were there for several weeks. Yeah. So in terms of big events in my career, you know, that's mm. probably one of the most testing, challenging events I've been involved in. And absolutely, going through that uh, was a real test. And, and certainly, I came out of that with two things, I suppose. Some personal values that there are things more important than work. 
because part of that was recognizing we were looking into the abyss. And I remember sitting around the table with my wife and saying, this could all go wrong. Because to be clear, the abyss for a partner in a partnership is, is bankruptcy, ultimately. And you're all, you're all we're responsible. We're all unlimited liability, yeah. all our capital's in there. So there's that piece. And, and it was a real moment of saying, um, well, all I can do is do the right thing. So, so it was really formative from that point of view. And certainly that's definitely informed my views on what's important. But you're right, from a business point of view, going through that process, not just the analytical bit of working out how do you disentangle this, how do we find a way to merge in the end with Deloitte, but the piece around keeping the business together. So the fact we were able to stop individuals running off and doing their own deals or finding their own home, the fact the partners understood their responsibility to the whole business uh, was really important because without that, um, we wouldn't have, have got through it, frankly. Because a people business just crumbles. Correct. And it goes back to something said earlier, it's about reputation. As soon as reputation goes, if your clients run and your people run, there, there is nothing else. Yeah. Uh, in our organization. Yeah. So actually, the most important thing was giving people not just the confidence we get through it, but the recognition that the right thing to do mm. was to make sure we got through it mm. as a team. Yeah. Uh, and that was, was, was powerful. You know, it was really powerful in terms of the time. And it definitely was sort of um, something that cemented my views of, of how you lead. It'll, be, it'll definitely be in the uh, autobiography. Mm. Somewhere. <laughs> yes. Somewhere. Yes. Kate, moments when you've had to really step up. I wonder, I mean, one I picked out from the time that you've been at Teenage Cancer Trust, I was very interested in how you responded to Stephen Sutton. Yeah. This was the teenager who was terminally ill and yep. sort of committed the last months and, and years of his life to raising awareness and, and raising money for Teenage Cancer Trust. Yeah, Stephen set out his bucket list and the first thing on his bucket list was to raise £10,000 for Teenage Cancer Trust. And as I chat to you today, it's well over £5.5 million of income that Stephen's inspired for Teenage Cancer Trust and and certainly he did a, a social media post when he'd been told that he probably had a matter of days left in his life and he did a final thumbs up. He did this remarkable message from the heart to everybody telling everyone to go and make the most of the opportunities that life offers you and Stephen talked about how you don't measure life in years, you measure it by the difference that you make and that then inspired a wave of giving to help try and get Stephen's total to a million pounds before he died and um, lots of celebrities were able to amplify this over social media and I think in terms of the leadership decisions that I was part of a huge privilege to be part of at that time at Teenage Cancer Trust we came together as an organisation and we were very consciously and Stephen's um, page was called Stephen's Story and, and our mantra was this is not our story, this is Stephen's story, What what is his intention how do we as an organisation honour that, help amplify that. You know, I took some criticism privately, but from colleagues within the charity sector, different directors of fundraising saying, you should have made that more about your brand. You weren't wearing branded T-shirts when you did, you know, BBC News. Where was your brand? You weren't making it enough about Teenage Cancer Trust. And and I was like, it wasn't about Teenage Cancer Trust. It was about Stephen. It's about this young man and, and respecting what he was inspired to do. And he said he was inspired to do that because of the difference we 
he'd made to his view of the world, but it wasn't about us. And I think for me, that's a really key thing. You can believe your own hype as an organisation. You can believe your own hype as a leader and think, because I've got this great big job title, I'm the big I am. You know, my chair of the board says to me, there's no monopoly on being right, Kate, just because you're the chief executive. He said, and really, the moment you become the chief executive, I was thinking about this when you were talking, David, he said, that's the moment people really stop telling you the truth because they've got a vested interest in telling you the things they think you want to hear. And mm. I think I think Teenage Cancer Trust, as we approach Stephen's story and how he responded, I still feel that we made hopefully good human decisions. You know, I, I was with Stephen's mom just last night. She still keeps his legacy going and yep. she's still a proud supporter of Teenage Cancer Trust. And I, I hope in part that's because we got the balance as right as we could. Is there, when you're going through the big decisions like that, Kate, is, is there a mentor that's taken you, taken you through? I do have a formal mentor now as a chief exec, which I find enormously useful. I always kind of have that litmus test of, oddly, can I explain this to my mum? Can I sit down with some of my mum's friends, you know, the women who've known me since I was a snotty-nosed toddler, and can I, in all honesty, explain to to one of my mum's close friends, Sheila, there's always the Sheila test, you know, can I explain this? And will she kind of go, yeah, all right, Kate, that's a a decent decision. And it's about making decisions that you can, yeah, defend to your mum. David, who's your Sheila? I have, uh, well, two things, I have a number of people now that I go to for a sort of advice outside the organisation just to talk about issues. No one uh, mentor now. Um, they've probably given up on me uh, now. But equally, I have people in the organisation who I just talk to. And there's one or two people. Obviously, there's a team. But to, to Kate's point, you know, many of them, even though they're very senior, they know me, the risk is they'll sort of reinforce my original thinking. There's one or two people who absolutely mm-hmm. won't. And I trust totally. And I'll have those yeah. early evening conversations over a cup of coffee or a drink and say, yeah, what do you think? Am I getting this right? And mm. they'll say very clearly, they'll yeah. explain why they agree yeah. or disagree. Yeah. And you need that. You absolutely need that, and whether some, it's outside or inside the organisation. Some of the hardest feedback I've had has been the most powerful mm. learning for me. A bit like mm. you were saying about your kind of 30-year-old vim and vigour yeah. of someone being able to phone you up. You know, I had a, a colleague say to me, you know, actually, Kate, you're so sometimes so professional. Where are you? Where's mm. the person? It's mm. that heart's piece. And, yeah. and, and for someone to be able to go... Actually, we don't need a professional decision here. We need a we need a Kate decision. Mm-hmm. We need to know what you're thinking. Show your workings, you know, and sometimes be able to show that vulnerability and go, okay, this is where I yeah. feel like we should go, but yeah. I'm not sure. not sure. Yeah, is it quite lonely sometimes, David? I, I think it's sort of an overused term that it's lonely at the top. Actually, um, I, I think there are times that you know ultimately you've got to make a decision. You know, as Kate said, yeah. ultimately things yeah. do land on your desk, and and when they do land on your desk, they tend to be the more difficult things because they'd have been dealt with elsewhere if they yep. weren't. But I don't think it's lonely in the sense you're therefore isolated. I certainly, you know, look for input, look for counsel. I recognise that in the end, certainly on those really difficult decisions, and, and to me those are always about things that could impact our reputation. Those are the ones that I worry about. Then you've got to take input, take advice, and you've got to make that decision. I've never felt it lonely with this privilege comes yeah. responsibility, yeah, and I've got to stand behind that decision. So that's the really important thing. Kate, what would you what would you have done differently in in the decade you've you've been there, or oh. have you still got time to you can do, you can keep doing things differently because you're only a year in? I think for me, one of the things that I can never do enough of is actually the noticing the small things, and I think I have a like lots of chief executives, incredibly busy diary. The mistake that I have made and hopefully make less often, the better I get at not making it, is is mistaking 
busyness and having a really full time with actually being the most productive senior leader I can be because actually my time is better spent spotting the small things joining the dots for people and you've spoken quite a bit on this because I think as you you alluded to you you live outside London I do so I think you probably work one day a week not in the office yeah it's funny because leaders are always meant to be there very visible you know whether on social media or or in the office but actually you find quite a lot of value in just being at home getting the reports done and catching up on emails and things I have a a chunky commute so and I use that train journey it's it's actually people kind of go goodness me you know I travel down from Stoke-on-Trent to London at least four days a week so I do that kind of to and fro. And actually, that's really that train journey is my thinking time is my okay, as I travel home, what really happened in those conversations today? What did I miss? What were the bits of body language? Who did I forget to speak to? Whose whose birthday did I forget? You know, what what was going on in that corner of the office? Some of those small things, those are really powerful, because I don't get voted in to my role. But if I haven't got people with me, I you know, I, I won't be able to make the changes that are needed. People have to believe in me as a person as well as a leader because you have to make tough decisions where you've got to be able to take people what, with you. What about your time management, David? I mean, you have the fixed term. There's a lot of people I'm sure would love to fill your diary from dawn till dusk and you have to sort of, I suppose, take ownership, crowbar the time in, thinking mm-hmm. time and so on. I think it's very similar to Kate's point that it's very easy to be busy, yeah. as you said. It's, <laughs> it, you know, I have no trouble filling, um, day. You know, filling my <laughs> email box, filling my day, yeah. etc. I think it's being disciplined about where's your greatest value? What do you want to do? And what I did early on was try and start thinking about it almost in blocks about, well, how much of my time should I spend with clients, our customers? Mm. You know, how much should I spend with the partners and the people? And try and think about that, almost almost have a goal and ensure that as I look at my Mm. plan for the next month, I'm trying to achieve that rather than just getting dragged into the things that are sort of current yeah. and urgent, but actually will make less difference. So so there's a bit of that, just being very deliberate and recognising you can't respond to every request. You can't do everything people ask you to do internally or externally. You've got to make some choices. Because firms like yours have historically client, client, client. It always put the client first. And I suppose more recently started thinking about themselves and their image and reputation and so on. So you almost have to, the diary has to reflect that, if you like. You can't always, certainly not in, in your position, it's not about the billable hours anymore. No, it isn't. And, and even, even throughout the organisation. So clients obviously are really important. That's the lifeblood of our organization in terms of how we build those relationships. Mm. But the thing that's become even clearer in the last eight years is our people are an asset, not a resource. And you'd have had some people in our organization 10 years ago, you know, viewing our people who, of course, deliver everything we do as being a resource. And and that's a massive difference. And they won't stay an asset unless we invest in them. And part of that is me investing time in them as well. And I I was thinking about some of Kate's points earlier on, because one of the things we really spend more and more time on is how do we reconcile some of our people's personal values? Because I think young people now are far more socially aware than I was when I was in their 20s. So how do we reconcile people's personal values with our firm's values? How do we deal with those? things where people say, I love the work here, but why are we acting for a tobacco company or why are we acting for one of the recent ones is, would we act for companies doing cannabis, for example? There's a whole raft of complex issues. So clearly, it's, it's absolutely legal in Canada, you can yeah. you know, a cannabis companies. And I think actually we have, we spend far more time now, you know, talk, and I spend more time talking to our people about, you know, who we are and what we stand for, what our values mean, how you reconcile. We're not trying to make moral decisions for every one of our employees because they want to understand that. And they want to be connected to 
what we stand for in a way that perhaps wasn't as important 10 yeah. years ago. Do you recognise that, Kate, as the sort of the, you know, the war for talent goes across all sectors? I Absolutely. Guess. Yeah. And certainly, I think my job is to set up a climate in which people can flourish for yeah. as long as it works for them to flourish. And, you know, you can measure staff turnover in years. But actually, if people have had two years with Teenage Cancer Trust in which they have been able to make a great difference, bring their heart and soul to the work that we do, and that's then enabled them to go on and do something different somewhere else, that is still that's a success. win. That's yeah. a massive success. Yeah. And and it's really about setting that climate, you know, to let that talent come through. Yep. So, if, you know, if I'm not in the office, that's it's not about that FaceTime. It's about people make spectacular decisions. I have the privilege of working with people who are so much better at their jobs than I would be at doing their jobs. And I have to let them fly, let mm. them flourish. Right. That's mm. that's what I'm for. Something I do in terms of our people is, which I think horrifies some of them. When I'm in the lift, I refuse to be in a lift that is silent. So I get, well, so anyone gets in, I say, this is a talking lift. <laughs> now, I'm in that fortunate position. Most people know who I am. <laughs> I don't know, but but it, it, it sort of just breaks down barriers because otherwise, yeah. what happens is people get in the lift. You know, they're talking with their friends. They get in. Gulp. Do you make Gulp. them take their earphones out then? Yeah. No, I say this is a talking lift. If you don't want to talk, you have to get out of the lift now. <laughs> and it just you know. Do people it, get out? No one has yet. <laughs> <laughs> they're probably a bit worried. I recognise them or something. That'd be the end <laughs> yes. of their career. Yeah. But it's just Great. breaking down those barriers because yeah. you know we're an organisation which has a natural hierarchy, and, and we we don't have to have that hierarchy. We need yeah. to sort of break down that. You only have the authority or power that people yeah, give you. You might have the job title, but no. you don't have authority. You, we no, give absolutely. authority and power to people, and they have to believe in people no, to absolutely. give you that. Absolutely okay. right, Kate. Great. Um, Kate Collins from Teenage Cancer Trust and David Sproul from Deloitte, thanks so much for a great conversation. Thank James, you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Season 1 of Leading with me, James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review. Listener.